I said in a very early episode, I can't quite locate it right now, but I will try, that one of the things this sequence of voice notes is trying to explore is the way in which new ideas come, not so much fully formed, springing like Pallas Athene from the head of Zeus, but in dribs and drabs, that they come upon us after a period of time when we have been scrabbling around with a lot of what seem like incoherent thoughts that suddenly come together. I've had so many instances and experiences of this happening in my life that I couldn't begin to list them or number them. But I think the central idea or a central idea is that we should treat ideas rather as we treat pieces of music than the way that we treat established truths. Part of our problem is that if someone says something that clashes with what we already think, and any new idea is highly likely to do that, if someone says something that clashes with what we already think, we instinctively and immediately reject it. We say, oh, well, that's not right. And I can remember saying something about the notion of intrascendence to somebody many, many years ago, decades ago. And his immediate response was, oh, well, that's, there's no mileage in that. That's nonsense. But it's not true. There's actually enormous mileage in it. It's just a matter of forming the conceptual ground, the fertile ground in which such an idea can take root and grow. The contrast is where someone is allowed to come up with an idea, to plant it in the ground, to watch it grow, to tend it, to do what's necessary to bring it on, to see whether it grows into anything viable or whether it withers and dies. And I don't see that that is so different from the kind of playing and exploring that authors and artists and sculptors and well, even scientists, frankly, do as they conjecture, as they form hypotheses, as they have sometimes very rebellious thoughts, but have the courage to pursue them. And of course, this connects with episode 20 on questioning, that our ideas are often questions, and they, even if not framed as questions, frequently question our existing assumptions. And if we kill them off because they don't match those assumptions, more or less killing them at birth, then we never, never give them the chance to grow strong enough to make an impression on us. And as I say, I've got so many examples of this that I couldn't begin to list them. But this has very much been the theme or the, a running uh, theme an undercurrent, perhaps, of these voice notes. And for some reason, out of the blue, a little set of verses occurred to me the other day, which I think summarises it quite well, and at the risk of convincing you that I have absolutely no poetic taste, let me try it out on you here. It's called, Ideas Are the Music of the Mind. 
Ideas are the music of the mind. Not true nor false, just asking to be played, listened, heard. Ideas are symphonies with themes that wind and intertwine, tangling each other as inchoate dreams. Ideas are dissonance, clashing with fixity, demanding reformation, resolution, interruption. Ideas are cadences that open, close, anticipate and linger. Ideas are improvised eruptions from unknown realms bursting upon us, beckoning. Ideas are fingers dancing over keys, exploring, playing in a fugue of voices. The idea there is that we don't strangle ideas at birth. We don't try to anticipate where they will lead. They don't, we don't try to anticipate what they mean even. And we certainly don't judge them other than in the most obvious sense in which they are framed in a language that is familiar. We don't judge them by existing standards. And that, of course, is a serious point. Language is always framed to say the sorts of things that existing cultures and past cultures think worth saying. Language that is fit to say something new, language that is fit for a remade world that thinks differently, will have to wait its turn to be framed adequately and certainly persuasively and certainly to achieve common usage because the very nature of language is that it has to be the lingua franca, a language that everyone uses, which is one of the reasons, of course, why some of the more extravagant philosophical excursions of the past hundred years have involved inventing new languages or certainly new words to try to say things that old languages don't say very well. And it's also a good reason to learn how other cultures express their views, their intrinsic atmosphere or ethos through their language. Because if their cultures are different, their languages will also be different. They will be capable of saying different things. And what they are capable of saying may well come to be something that we want to say once we understand it. You can also see how all of this, the way we strangle new ideas at birth, the way we prejudge them, the way we throw them away before they've been given a chance to establish themselves in the new ground that they will gradually prepare for themselves in our minds, all of this, together with our tendency to reject other cultures, other frames of reference, other times, the way other people live, the way other people speak and act, and the things that they believe, all the things that go 
towards discrimination and racism and intolerance, they're all really of a piece. They're all really about saying, I'm comfortable with what I know and I'm going to carry on with what I know in the face of this contradictory or recalcitrant evidence because to try to do or to embrace or even more to absorb and embody something completely alien to me is far too threatening in that we can see the source of so much human intolerance and cruelty and all the things that have served over the course of history to make our lives and the lives of our predecessors so miserable, brutish and short. So this is a plea. My poem is a plea. This whole series of notes is a plea for new ideas at least to be given breathing space for us to treat them like new string quartets or piano sonatas, not to reject them because they're unfamiliar, because they don't meet our prior interests and standards. And if you look into the history, for example, of what was deemed acceptable and what was deemed degenerate in such things as the Soviet Union, in the Cultural Revolution in China, in the Nazis, the things that were degenerate were almost always things that tried to stretch the boundaries of culture beyond their historic framework. And that, I think, is something that in a way divides human beings into two categories insofar as it's worth even thinking in such terms. People who are prepared to be changed and to allow things, the purchase on them, that will change them. And people who already think that everything that is worth knowing is already known, and everything that is known is what they know. And I don't think I need to spell out the relationship with determinism as contrasted with indeterminism in order to make that point.